Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. All right, Mr. Show, no worries. On point and on this podcast, the Trudeau government slamming the brakes on an ill-thought vaccine mandate that will take thousands of truckers off the road and threatens our supply chains. Well, they're scrambling to undo what they have put in. But the fix announced is not a fix. And those in the trucking dis- uh, industry are completely in the dark as to what's really going on. So we will talk about that. Duke of York is no more, no longer a royal. Oh, yes. By birthright, maybe. But the Queen's youngest son has now been stripped of all his titles and is now just a regular old private citizen known as Andrew, who's going to be left to live his life in privacy and fight his own legal woes. It is unprecedented. But it is, no question, I think the Queen long overdue to take such an action. Trudeau government wants all Canadians, you know, to get into electric cars in the next decade. Yet if you want to drive an electric car, we need lithium batteries. And China has now cornered this market and bought up most of the world's supply, including many Canadian mining companies. So the question is, you know, why didn't the Trudeau government protect this crucial ingredient that they themselves designated just last year as essential to our economy? We'll talk about that. We also keep hearing from the climate experts that we have 10 years before humanity faces extinction, but they've been saying this now for decades. We've been tripping. We've been at that tripping and tipping point for decades. So why does the narrative remain? There's a new study suggesting that it's the forecasting models that make the predictions so unreliable. Let us get talking. This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. I just want to assure Canadians that uh, we've been working very, very hard to ensure that uh, supply chains continue to flow. Um, Of course, uh, I continue to work with uh, my colleagues uh, in transportation and others uh, to ensure that, uh, that just as we have throughout this pandemic, that supply chains continue to be resilient. What a load of hooey. We're getting the gears from the Trudeau government, which is flip flopping on a flip flop of a policy that has never been anything but a game. Alex Pearson with you on this uh, Thursday, January 13th. And boy, there are a lot of moving parts today. It has been that kind of news day. And we've got a really, really busy show lined up that uh, touches on a lot of stuff. Most of it, nothing to do with COVID. So that's a good thing. We, of course, will uh, talk about the former perverted prince. He is a prince no longer, of course. It's been a a pretty stunning day out of uh, the UK with this announcement from Buckingham Palace. And uh, the Queen has, well, she's stripped her third son of his royal titles and all his patronship, patronage appointments and all the rest of it. And so, boy, oh boy, what a big story. He is now a peasant like the rest of us. But it's a stunning development. And uh, i got to be honest, I'm I'm a little surprised that the Queen has put up with it for this long. And um, he has brought her a lot of disgrace needlessly but nonetheless we will speak uh, with a uh, author and a royal biographer about this kind of unprecedented day in the UK but I want to start on what has been a total complete communication fail a flip-flop of a flip-flop involving you know one of the most important 
issues facing our country right now. And this whole thing started last night when we uh, learned that the Trudeau government was walking back its ill-thought vaccine mandate on our Canadian truckers, who they insist, you know, can only bring goods across our borders if they're fully vaxxed. So I'm, you know, in bed after the show, kind of going through the news and the information comes out. And wow, that's a big uh, reversal. But the news was that unvaccinated Canadian drivers would be exempt from this mandate set to come in on Saturday the 15th. And I was shocked, but it came as a complete shock to the trucking industry, which has been a complete afterthought to the Trudeau government, which has been begging them for months not to do this, warning that they'll be left short thousands of truckers when they're already dealing with shortages. They warn that the supply chains will be sent into chaos. And all day we've been reporting this, telling you all about, well, good news, at least they're coming down on this thing, but just before the show... The Trudeau government sends out this statement saying, oopsie, oopsie, yep, mm, made a little mistake, yeah, mm, that information was wrong. Nothing's changed. So both Canadian and American truckers still have to be fully vaccinated by this Saturday, or they've got to test and quarantine for days, which is something truckers can't do. It takes them off the road for days. Truckers don't sit around. They pick up a load, they drop a load. They pick up a road, they drop a load. They just keep going. And so this is a colossal cluster truck. And this screw-up is creating so much confusion on an issue that affects billions of dollars of trade that we move across our borders every single day. So how this information got out to the media and was left to sit there, stew, you know, go across this country, and it's not clarified for 20 hours is absolutely unacceptable. But welcome to political pandemic policymaking. And we've seen so much of this pandemic policy making that's designed to score political points versus what's actually good for us and this country. And unless it changes again, and it very well could, uh, come Saturday the 15th, as many as 16 to 20,000 Canadian and even more American drivers could be parked if they're not vaccinated, which means that thousands of daily shipments of goods will stop moving. And so we're talking things like fruits, uh, vegetables, things we can't grow in Canada in the winter. We're talking about auto parts. We're basically talking about everything you find on a store shelf that will be affected. And on January 22nd, the Biden administration, well, it's going to make things worse because it's bringing in its own useless vaccine mandate. And unless both sides back down, finding toilet paper is going to be the least of our problems. And as economist Ian Lee, who chatted with John Oakley just before the show said, you know, there are very, very real consequences to these decisions. Because people say an economic argument, lives are more important than money, don't you understand, Professor Lee, you know? No, no, no. I need to eat. All of us need to eat. We have to go to grocery stores, and the food has to be on the shelves. And I'm seeing images today in the New York Times and some other American media of grocery stores with nothing on the shelves. It's not just an economic argument. No, it's not. He's right. And let's talk about safety, because apparently safety of our truck drivers hasn't been much of a thought for the first 18 months of this clown show. I mean, while we were all locked down making bread, well, I wasn't, uh, making bread and, and uh, coming up with whatever Netflix special you want to dive into, truckers across this country were putting their arses in the line, keeping food on our tables. And no one, would, no one was worried about them. No one was worried if they got COVID. And that's because... Even though they were doing thousands of trips back and forth over the border daily, there's no evidence that truck drivers have been a source of spread, not then and not now. 
Yet as our supply chains crumble, the Trudeau government seems very determined to make it look like they're taking action, being strong, while ignoring the very real threat that this mandate poses to our everyday life. We got enough problems right now. So why they're playing a game with this, I will never understand. I mean, we move $640 billion in goods across this uh, border every year with our neighbors. $1.5 billion of that a day. And truck drivers bear 70% of these loads. We cannot function without the goods they bring in. Yes, we want people vaccinated, but what is the cost? And how does this keep us safe? Truck drivers sit alone in a cab. They have very little contact with people. They are not a threat. So I don't understand how this makes anybody safer. And when a government makes policy, they have to manage the fallout. And that's not happening. Otherwise, they'd have come out and clarified news reports immediately. Saying, no, 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 there's been a mistake. That's not true. But no, no, they've let it play around the clock for hours on media right across this country. And if they were ser seriously concerned about managing this, they'd have maybe spent months trying to help recruit drivers to fill the void. They've done nothing of that. Maybe they'd find a way to make sure goods can move back and forth without disruption. This is the worst kind of politics because it is reckless. The reality is the Trudeau government floated an idea. They wanted to maybe change the policy to see how the public would feel. We've seen this time and again with all sorts of politicians. But I guess today their polls told them that moms in downtown Toronto or Montreal are good with this. Well, those polling numbers may change when their favorite store has nothing to sell them. But hey, at least they've got our backs, right? Because people say an economic argument, lives are more important than money, don't you understand, Professor Lee, you know? No, no, no. I need to eat. All of us need to eat. We have to go to grocery stores and the food has to be on the shelves. And I'm seeing images today in the New York Times and some other American media of grocery stores with nothing on the shelves. It's not just an economic argument. There you go. Yes. That is economist Ian Lee pointing out the obvious. We need stuff. And there are costs of the decisions being made by those who insist, insist, you know, safety first. But today was just a gong show. And it's created a lot of needless confusion on a reckless vaccine mandate that will sideline thousands of our truck drivers. And so what happened last night, like kind of after my show, I'm reading the news as I do. And the Trudeau government announces this reversal, you know, that it's going to give Canadian truck drivers an exemption for vaccine mandates that come into play on January 15th. That's this Saturday. And they let this play in the media for about 20 hours. It was on all day. Every radio, every TV across this country. And then around 5.30, we get this announcement that, oopsie, Trudeau government made a mistake. No changes are being made. No, no, everything's uh, set to go. Come January 15th, truck drivers are crossing uh, our borders. will have to be fully vaxxed or they get sidelined. And... Um, this is going to affect thousands of trucks coming across our borders at a time when we've already got driver shortages on both sides of the border and we've got supply chains that are brittle thin at best. And so the warning these drivers have been saying is our shelves could be bare if we are parked. But, you know, clearly those in charge are willing to take that risk because they see some kind of political gain. Ron Foxcroft is chairman, founder and CEO of Fox 
40 International, but he's also the CEO and chairman of Fluke Transportation Group. He joins us now. Good to have you, Ron. My pleasure. Always, Alex. Thank you. So, you know, a lot of those in the trucking industry um, have said that they were completely taken aback by this announcement of this sudden reversal. Um, and then all, all of a sudden, <laughs> the reversal gets reversed. What do you make of all of what's going on? I think it was a gong show. You said it well. It was a gong show. And, and now it puts us in peril. You know, Alex, you must be getting tired of people like me complaining about the trucking industry being in peril uh, prior to the pandemic. You know, we had we had many problems prior to the pandemic. Um, before March 6, 2020, our industry was about 18,000 drivers short. Uh, we're an aging industry. We had problems and, and, you know, and so on. And then the pandemic hit, and now the numbers are closer to, in Canada, about 23,000 uh, truck drivers short in, in our industry. And that alone is a big problem. Now you throw in the pandemic, and now you throw in this gong show today, because I was talking all day about, well, we've, we've bought ourselves a week because, yeah. you know, the Canadian government made the announcement this morning, but the United States government didn't make the same announcement. So what we could do, uh, we bought a week to get ourselves into the United States and back into Canada because mm -hmm. it still really wasn't solving the problem if United States doesn't adopt the same policy. Yeah, and for our listeners, uh, the United States on January 22nd, you know, enact the same kind of vaccine mandate uh, when they've got a shortage of drivers of about 80,000. I mean, I don't know what Joe Biden and Justin Trudeau think they're going to gain. Sure, people should get vaccinated. However, uh, truck drivers are, um, they're a lone group. They travel alone. They spend very little time kind of hanging out with people. They're in their truck. They get goods to market. They don't hang out where they are. They go, they bring it back, and then they go again. And so one of the big challenges, you know, that they, they face is, well, you'll have to quarantine. I mean, you can't quarantine a truck driver or else they can't get back in their truck to deliver the goods. And so no. I have to, yeah. So I have to think, Ron, that today probably caused a lot of angst and, and trouble because your industry has already tried to prepare for this deadline on, on Saturday and, and then probably we're making new arrangements to figure out, okay, well, how do we, you know, we've got another week to go, we can make more changes and then it's kind of throwing everything into to disarray. Yeah, a couple things. I want to give a lot of kudos to the CTA, the Canadian Trucking Association, mm -hmm. Stephen mm -hmm. Laskowski, because very, very professionally, he's been communicating our concerns within our industry. Also, on your show, Ian Lee uh, communicated this very, very well. Like, let's face mm -hmm. it, number one, the, the, the cupboards could become bare. That's one thing. The second thing, and this affects everybody, and, and I'm concerned about the little guy. The price yeah, yeah. of essential services, uh, you know, at Fluke Transport, if it's on time, it's a fluke. We truck essential services, things that go into grocery stores, big box stores, pharmacy stores. And, and you know, the average person has to depend on that. The average person has to eat. And, and you know, I, um, I can't believe what the prices are going to be. An economist mm -hmm. told me the prices in the grocery store are going up this month by about 7%. Alex... Roy Green tells me you're really smart, and, and <laughs> well, I don't think generous. you have to be very smart to figure out what yeah. the price of groceries are going to be December mm -hmm. 31st, 2022. 
well, you know, we've got inflation and then we've got this and, you know, when a, a stick of butter or a pound of butter is costing nine bucks at a grocery store, you know, it really does hurt those who are on budgets, who have, yeah. you know, limited resources. Those are the people it will hurt most. But, you know, the other thing is, you know, we want safety, but at what cost? I mean, this is driving a lot of the most experienced drivers off the road who are saying to hell with it. And so that experience leaves the industry. Um, there's been nothing done to recruit new drivers. And I mean, there's something that uh, the government could have done proactively is start helping the industry, you know, recruit people, put commercials at whatever, but get the word out to get new people in, into the trucks. Nothing of that has been done. And so what do you expect? Um, you know, this will go through, I guess. And I guess they think it's a political win for them. But when would we start to see? And we are already seeing some of the shelves empty. I mean, the liquor store shelves have been empty on certain um, yep. you know things. But there will be shortages. When do we start getting really hit? Well, I'm going to tell you right now, our strategy starting tomorrow at Fluke. And I'm also a manufacturer. We ship yeah. every single day from Fox 40 to our plant in New York State. So this is really important because... We make safety products, and it's mm -hmm. very vital that our products get over to our New York State plant every single day. But to answer your question directly, I guess now we know the rules, unless they get changed again tomorrow. So tomorrow morning, our team, and I like to surround myself with people smarter than me, we're going to develop a new recruitment and retention uh, service within Fluke Transport. We have to take it on. We cannot leave this to the responsibility of the government because, you know, just because of the size of government, uh, Alex, uh, they can't move as fast like they do in 12 months what I do in 12 minutes. So we're going to meet tomorrow and all our trucking companies are going to meet tomorrow, the CTA, and we have to put and we have to innovate a new recruitment and retention program for the trucking industry across Canada because we are aging. We are losing drivers. It's a real big problem. Ian Lee said it best. Finally, we're going to have shelves empty. And forget the price. I mean, it's going to hurt the little guy. It's going to hurt every person in Canada as the prices go up and the shelves become empty. So we have to take on this responsibility and kudos to the CTA because I know they're going to lead us and help us and give us some ideas. What are those ideas? I don't know because today was very confusing for us in the industry. Yeah, it sends a signal that there is confusion and uncertainty, which never helps an economy. And, and you know, it causes a lot of needless panic. And we saw what happened at the beginning of this pandemic, Ron, when everyone ran out to get um, toilet paper. This huh. sends needless panic uh, at a time when people's nerves are absolutely frayed. And the government keeps saying, well, we're working with the industry. We're working in the industry. Are they? I'm not too sure about that, but I'm glad you brought that up because last April 2020, we trucked from Pennsylvania 25 loads a day of toilet paper. And you remember mm -hmm. the panic. Jeez. Well, oh, yes. <laughs> that's just one product. There's thousands of products in the big box stores and the grocery stores. And heaven forbid, if those shelves start to become empty, uh, we are, we are going to be in a real panic situation in this country. So I really believe, Alex, we in the private sector have to lead the resurgence of recruitment and retention of truck drivers. We are essential service. We are a skilled trade, and we have to do more to recruit and retain.
Yeah, and to your point, I mean, you know, in the beginning of this thing for the 18 months, uh, you know, no one was concerned about drivers spreading or bringing COVID back because the need for food and essentials and living was that great that um, we would never dream of telling our truck drivers to stay home and lock down. So there was no concern then, no, no data to suggest that drivers are, are causing massive spread and, and threat to our, our safety. So I guess we're going to have to see a bit of a game of Russian roulette. And and um, yeah, do you get the sense that they're going to reverse course again? I don't think they're going to have a choice ultimately. And will that bring back some of the older generations? Will truck drivers come back if the government backs off of this? I'm sorry to say, I think the rule is ultimately going to be put in place. I don't see that, Alec. I ho- you know what? Prove me wrong. And I want to be wrong, but I think ultimately the rule is going to be you go to the border and you're going to be double vaxxed and you have to, you know, fans that want to go to the Buffalo Bills on, yeah. on Saturday have to get a test for 200 bucks in the United States to get back into Canada. Now, mm-hmm. United States sent a man to the moon 51 years ago. Now they can't send a person from the Buffalo Bills uh, game on Saturday back into Canada. Think about that. That's all I do, Ron, unfortunately. It's just, uh, you know, we've got politicians making what I think are very foolish and short-sighted decisions for political points. But at the at the end of the day, it is the greater good that uh, who will suffer. So I, I will keep my fingers crossed that some sanity will prevail and um, we'll certainly keep uh, in touch. But I wish you the very best of luck and I thank you for joining us. Thanks, Alex. It's always a pleasure. That is Ron Foxcroft, who uh, has been in this industry for a whole long time with his Fluke Transportation Group. And so, of course, uh, we'll see what comes out of this. But uh, are they that stupid? I mean, I know it's I'm gonna, It's a rhetorical question, but really? I, I don't see how they think this is going to end well. But let us see what happens. Well, big news out of the UK. Prince Andrew no longer... His Royal Highness, and this coming just a day after a New York judge greenlit this civil suit against her youngest and what many have said is her favored son, who is now also accused of sexual assault. The Queen has signed off on Andrew being stripped of his military titles, his charities, and so he'll no longer be addressed as His Royal Highness, and the Duke of York is no more. Andrew Albert Christian Edward is actually his name. I had to look that up. Uh, will have no more public appearances. And from here on out, he's going to be fighting his own legal issues as just a regular old private citizen. Quite a day in Buckingham Palace. Angela Levin is an award-winning journalist, a royal commentator, but also a biographer who's written numbers of books, including one, Conversations with the Prince. She joins us now. Good to have you, Angela. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. So this is fairly unprecedented, but I got to be honest, I'm so, so surprised that the Queen has been uh, as patient as she has been on this. I think everyone's surprised. I'm absolutely shocked to my toes. I think that she has realized that it's gone on for too long and that the um, amount of steam that is running now against him could blow the whole royal family out the window just as much as him. She is uh, a pragmatist. And although she loves Andrew dearly, and as you said, uh, he is her favorite son, she has a very fine dividing line between um, being a monarch and being a mother. And often the monarch wins. And this is the case point of it actually winning. She gives in a lot nowadays, so the older she's got, the more relaxed she's been. Um, But 
when it comes down to it, it's it's her um, decision to serve all the citizens that she can until she dies. And that includes putting all the countries in the Commonwealth first. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, she serves country first, but she is a mother. So it has to be very, very painful for her. I mean, as angry as she must be, um, you know, she's got to protect, uh, you know, the, the royal uh, family and that and the name. Uh, but it, it's got to be painful for her. It's um, agony, I think. But one of the problems is that um, Andrew hasn't taken it seriously enough. We heard him on a, a night news um, program where he was absolutely impossible to understand. He kept dismissing it and making jokes and he just didn't take it seriously. And, and saying how wonderful he was with Epstein, who we all know was mm -hmm. a, um, a very uh, abused underage girls. And um, when he finished, he said to the director, she, she told me, he said to her, hadn't it gone really well? I'm delighted. And then he went to the Queen and said the same thing. Well, it was so appalling that it indicates that he's not very good about talking about these things because he only mm -hmm. sees it from his own point of view. And he is quite arrogant and he doesn't like to listen. And um, he, he got to the stage now where it was getting, I think, quite dangerous um, also, what happened today was that 150 former army and navy people wrote directly to the Queen. We believe that it was done by an anti-monarchist group, how at least it was worded by them, um, to say that they wanted him dismissed because they don't want a person like him to be a patron of their... Um, particular part of the military, and mm -hmm. um, they 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 wanted and they wanted him to get rid of. Well, to me even, and I don't know whether it happened to the royal family. I felt this could be a rolling snowball and gather momentum that could have been very very dangerous for the royal family, and something had to be done quickly. It's very unusual for the palace to move fast. They like to ponder and think and consider, but. I think that um, if she'd asked Prince Charles and Prince William for help, which I'm sure she did, that they are so furious with their brother, well, our uncle, that um, they would have said, you know, this is absolutely enough. Added to which, if he does um, agree to go to court and just try and fight for his case, um, a lot of the... Um, people who the lawyers want to speak to will be interviewed over the summer. The case is believed to come out between um, autumn and December, but they need to clarify everything and get all the paperwork in place. And right. that, of course, will put a tremendously heavy dark cloud over the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, which is due to take place at the beginning of June. And so um, yeah. I think it would have got the headlines rather than the Jubilee, which is just not fair in Her Majesty, who's been on the throne for 70 years. 
Yeah, and, and this uh, civil case out of New York is going to give the tabloids something to write about, regardless of whether he shows up or not, because it will come out. Um, and many, many, uh, I guess, royal family members are expected to be called to the stand. But, you know, I, I guess there was a point where he was expecting to be brought back into the fold. I think he believed he would be able to kind of hide away for a while and come back to royal duties. Um, what happens to him now? Is he just Andrew? Uh, does he appear with them? Does he go to Christmas at the family? Like, is he completely exiled? Well, I don't know if he's completely exiled. I mean, none of us know if he was with the Queen over Christmas. I mean, it's not, that's the private part of her life and one which she hasn't shared. But he certainly won't be at the um, Jubilee uh, he's going to be invisible, is the word I was told. Mm. And he won't be allowed, which is very significant, on the balcony. You know, Buckingham Palace has right. this little balcony where all the royals stand and wave and smile and often look up uh, over an airplane shooting across um, in different colours. And um, he's not going to be allowed to do that. He also won't be allowed to speak to the press or do anything at all. Um, that involves the family. He will be at a loss because he doesn't have many interests apart from riding and playing golf. Um, he used to tag on playing golf uh, a lot onto his um, when he went abroad for being a uh -huh. you know, advisor on business. And um, I think that he won't know what to do with himself actually. I expect a lot of television, a lot of anguish. And, oh yeah, um, well, maybe not not himself because he's not a he's not a very good TV interview. Just before I let you go, Angela, I mean, he has been selling off some of his assets. He just sold off a Swiss chalet, uh, not a restaurant, but uh, he made a, a few million. I think it was about seventeen million or thirty million Canadian on a, a chalet out of uh, that he sold. Does he get to keep that money? Is that uh, his money? Is that the taxpayers' money? I mean, does he have money to carry him along? No, it's um, his money and his ex-wife's money. They bought it together. But he has had to pay six and a half million pounds to the woman who sold it to him, who was about right. to take a case against him because he didn't uh, pay it when he first bought the uh, place. And actually, it's a wonder that he will be able to keep much of it because Virginia, who's put the uh, accusations against him, um, will demand a huge amount because she, with the help of her lawyers, doesn't necessarily want all the money. She wants to fight it in court. So mm -hmm. if she gives into this, it's going to have to be an awful lot of money. Boy, oh boy, what a fascinating day, and no question, it's not the last we've heard of it, but uh, you have a particular insight as you've had, um, you know, been writing about this and following it, and uh, certainly uh, talked with the royals in many of your books uh, to give us a perspective that most of us don't get, uh, get to see. So, Angela, very much appreciate your time on this, and I thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. That is uh, Angela Levin, who uh, is a royal common, uh, commentator, but also author, if you're interested in her book, Conversations with a Prince. And boy, oh boy, they're going to have a lot to talk about and write about for a very long time. Not about Prince Andrew, but uh, what are we going to call him, Andy? So, you know, electric cars are the future, we are told, and at both the federal and provincial level, we have poured millions and millions into upgrading car plants so that we can stake our claim in the market. But 
You can't make electric cars without electric batteries, and those batteries can't be made without lithium. And that's why the Trudeau government designated lithium as an essential to our economy just last year. It created this uh, joint plan with the United States to secure supplies of this mineral. We don't have lithium mines. We don't have uh, plants here to process it and no processing facilities. We do, however, have Canadian companies that develop it in other countries. But it doesn't appear that anyone in this government is paying attention to the fact that China has been very, very busy buying up a lot of mineral companies with very little oversight or pushback. And it now controls the majority of the key material needed to make batteries that the Trudeau government is banking our country's future on. Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP and President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, joining me now. Good to have you, Dan. Uh, Good to be here, Alex. So this headline caught my eye because a company called Neo Lithium was just purchased by China. And normally a company like this is supposed to be reviewed and I guess to make sure that it's on the up and up and all the rest of it. And, you know, make sure that it's not a threat to our economy or our national security. They didn't even review it. They're just like, yep, take it. There you go. Buy it. I mean, it's it's a significant thing that we're just giving this all away. Well, it is. And if you consider that uh, this is the same government that has made a big deal about uh, the shift uh, away from hydrocarbons into renewables, which include uh, the mainstay, uh, saying that by 2035, no vehicle in Canada can be used, purchased, uh, that won't be an electric vehicle, it seems kind of counterintuitive that within 12, 13 years of that deadline, uh, you simply sort of kiss away uh, some mm-hmm. of the leading Canadian companies involved with, uh, you know, technologies that could be of great use to a country like China, which by 2030 intends to have 67% of all of Boy. the EV battery productions in the world. And so I want to ask the question, uh, which I think uh, your listeners need to know, and that's why, you know, why is it that the Investment Canada Act, which is very clear, it says the investment injurious to Canada's national security where it involves critical minerals. It seems to me that uh, not only did the government drop the ball, but uh, the Globe and Mail seems to have pointed out the government uh, completely uh, and utterly is complicit in giving China a a pretty significant uh, access to uh, Canada's minerals, which will be needed to achieve its objective of virtual monopoly within several years. Right. And I don't think it will um, be um, accepted with uh, a lot of warmth by the United States, which we, you know, form this joint plan to secure supplies. They, they, they would have to be looking at us saying, what the hell are you doing? Well, yeah. And it, it builds into the idea that Canada is not a trusted security, uh, you know, partner when it comes to not just things like Five Eyes, which you've discussed many times before, but any type of new organization that is really designed to uh, to build uh, you know, a, a barrier to uh, to the want of China to achieve uh, global domination of the next, you know, the next types of, of technologies. Many of them by, uh, you know, uh, unsuspectingly going and picking up, uh, you know, global assets to do just that. Remember, 70% of the lithium that China needs has to be imported from other countries. So Canada which does have not just rare earth minerals, but also has the potential, uh, not just in terms of technology in other countries. Here I'm thinking of Argentina, where this particular company, Neolithium, uh, has uh, some interest. 
it's giving really China an advantage at a time in which yeah. you and I are spending billions of dollars to give subsidies to car companies, as you rightly said at the beginning, to build uh, you know uh, battery vehicles, uh, most of those batteries controlled by now China, thanks in no small part to a lack of oversight and interest by the Trudeau government. And so how do you see this? Um, I mean, they own so much now that uh, clearly we're going to have to buy back minerals that we had and probably at a much greater price. But uh, it, it creates a lot of tricky scenarios because, you know, China with the worst climate, um, you know, uh, record in the planet, I think, uh, they're going to control a market that every other country wants. And um, and certainly you get Biden and, and Trudeau who have got this build back better, this whole green utopia they want to build. It's going to be very difficult if they have to barter with China to get the mineral that everybody wants. China's going to sell us enough rope to hang ourselves. And they're doing that simply by saying... You, as a country, can go ahead. Uh, you know, this is good for you. You do the uh, carbon reduction. You shut down your manufacturing. You shut down your automotive industry. You take away your internal combustion engines, which, by the way, are far more efficient, less damaging to the environment than most electric vehicles. And I'm going to say that with absolute emphasis, because I know what I'm talking about. Uh, mm-hmm. Demonstrably, what is being made done today is far better uh, than what uh, is being uh, considered when you take the totality of the negative impact uh, and environmental impact uh, that building EVs. You only have to look at uh, you know the conditions on which children are being forced to work in Democratic Congo, uh, or look at uh, some of the toxic uh, spillways that uh, which which are no way comparative to what we've done here in Canada in terms of our own work on uh, the uh, the uh, the uh, tar sands or the uh, you know the oil sands in, in in Alberta what we're seeing though is a willingness by the Canadian government and, and a lot of people in Canada say yeah let, let's let China do all the manufacturing uh, we'll sit back and impose and punish ourselves shut down our, our manufacturing sector while at the same time driving up the price of energy to intolerable levels and by the way it, Canadians have nothing on the Europeans who've already done the stupidity mm-hmm. and un- unfortunately are paying yes. a very, very significant toll this evening and, and over the next course of the next several weeks during winter. Yeah, I mean, they've had to import uh, coal and things like that to, to keep themselves um, alive yeah, in, in the cold. So, you know, the Ring of Fire uh, could be an option. I'm not sure if the Ring of Fire, they've got it's a, a wealth of minerals. I'm not sure if lithium is rich in the Ring of Fire, but the Ring of Fire is not even developed. I mean, until that gets agreements with the government and indigenous communities, I mean, it's, it's yeah. you know, 20, it's a conversation that is 20 years in the making, but it, it is a long way off from being done, unfortunately. But do we have any options here in this country, or is it too too late. Yeah, well, look, we don't have lithium carbonate uh, reserves. This is, uh, and that, by the way, that price for that uh, in, in salted areas uh, where their brine is made, and that, of course, is another environmental issue, uh, that price has increased fourfold. Rare earth minerals, however, is something we have, definitely in northern Ontario, and you don't have to go very far to get the other part, copper, which we're very well known yeah. for, not just in Canada, but around the world. Uh, we also have this little thing called cobalt. Hell, we even have a city in our, in our province yeah. named after it. So we have the building blocks, we have the materials, but we lack the understanding uh, that we need to process in our own backyards. We've lost the ability in so many areas to look after ourselves. We can always get someone else to do it for us and live this fat, wonderful life uh, that we seem to be living. I think, though, uh, Alex, we're coming to a crunch where... If we don't begin to understand if this is the curve that we have to take and we don't have the resources to meet it, uh, we don't have a steering wheel, much less the brakes to get through all of this, uh, this, this torturous future that the governments want to impose on us, uh, then we're going to wind up in, uh, with neither manufacturing of older products 
and and the need to make that so-called transition to the new stuff, which for many people I think is starting to become a bit of a, a world of magic and make believe. Uh, electric vehicles, as I said, might be the wonderful whiz thing, and everyone thinks they're they're the great uh, wonderful you know future, but they are not the transistor radio in terms of technological mm-hmm. breakthroughs. They are not the internet yep. of the 1990s, and in fact, we've had electric vehicles going back well before even gasoline vehicles going back to the 1870s, 1880s. So, look, I think what we need to understand here, China has just played us again in chess, and we have a willing government in Ottawa that, uh, again, once again, demonstrating a lack of leadership. It has taken national security and uh, set it aside. Unfortunately, it's going to hurt Canadians. Mm -hmm. It's going to continue hurting our reputation. Yeah, too little, too late, but nonetheless. All right. Look, I know you're coming back a little bit later with Michael Tobe. Uh, I called you on double duty tonight. I very much appreciate it. I'll get your thoughts on a couple of big ones today with the with our truckers. Cheers, Dan. Looking forward to it. Bye, Alex. All right. That's Dan McTagg. You know, the running theme for the climate crowd has been that humanity is 10 years from catastrophe. And we apparently have been in that tipping point now for as long as I can remember. And yet here we are still today. And you got to wonder why this narrative is never challenged. What is the data being used to come up with these dire predictions? There's a new study out by the Fraser Institute that finds that the main models being used to forecast the future climate are proving inaccurate and unreliable because, you know, despite greenhouse gases increasing, we never seem to move from this 10-year mark from our demise. And looking at the report, we've now got about 20 years of real-world data that should actually be showing us tangible evidence of what is happening and where we are at now to get a much more accurate picture. Kenneth Green is a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute. He is the author of this report, Is Climate Catastrophe Really 10 Years Away? Good to have you, Ken. Good to be with you. So models, I mean, they have improved, I guess, but they always say the same thing. And we, you know, we rely on on speculative models to make policy. And so the policy is just being made on best guesses. That's right. And that's and that's, that's the, the crux of the problem right there, which is we rely on speculative models to make policy. We, we treat speculative models as if they're generating actual data, real world data of measurements of things or or characterizations of things that are real. And we use that also for evidence in, in things like that, creating regulations of uh, put people A are doing things to people B and we want to stop them. And so the, the, the real core of the problem is we have taken these models to be science. They have, they have relabeled themselves the science um, and we're, we're used, treating them as if they are real when they're not. And these 10 years to Armageddon models or 10 years to Climageddon models um, are very much that way, which is they are they are highly speculative. They're not based on simply extrapolating a line forward from what we've actually measured and seen using traditional empirical science. Instead, mm-hmm. they forecast the future based on completely speculative ideas of what the future is going to look like and what would have to happen along the way for it to look like that. Uh, and, and that's the thing where I think people don't understand. They, they become confused about not only climate change, but other areas as well. Right. And as I read through your report, the one kind of headline that kept coming back to me was what we just witnessed in B.C., you know, where we knew or we learned after the fact that all these reports had been written in 2015, 2016, warning, you know, you've got to increase the infrastructure. There's a flood coming. You're built on a floodplain. 
um, you need stronger dikes. And of course, government policy or government um, action is is never to be found. And then we find ourselves with calamity uh, at our doorsteps. And so is that the kind of data you're looking at where it's like, okay, here's what we've got. This is what we're looking at. Um, this is how we should be moving forward. Yes, I mean, that's exactly right, which is why we should be looking at, we should be using the data we have, which is real observational data, to be planning our steps forward to reduce risks of climate change. So as you said, you know, if we're concerned, if the concern about climate change is that we're going to have coastal flooding because sea level might rise, then we should be figuring out ways to protect the inland environment from higher seas whether it's through conventional, through conventional engineering technologies that we've had for, for literally thousands of years. The same is true of water distribution. If we're going to have uh, droughts in some areas, too much water in some areas, too little water in some areas, we need to be looking to, to address that incrementally and responsively, adaptively, using our mm-hmm. conventional technologies we've had since the time of the Romans. We don't need to be, what we should, we should not be doing is saying, I think the future is going to look like X and I'm going to head towards that but I'm going to, in the meantime, I'm going to ignore all this other real, uh, t- real-time proximal threats because I'm focused only on what I think is going to happen in 20, 2050 or 2100. Um, and that's what we've been doing. That's why we've allowed our energy systems to languish, the conventional energy systems, fossil fuel systems, to languish uh, because all we want to focus, about, focus on is wind and solar power, the, f- the power mm-hmm. of the future. We, we've allowed people to continue to move into floodplains and live it in coastal, highly uh, flood risk areas, uh, and subsidize them living there with, with government insurance, even though we, we are, we're telling them that we're concerned about rising sea levels and climate change. Um, so, yeah, right. the problem is we're focusing on these models and not reality. Yeah, but we've also allowed governments of all different stripes, um, you know, to tell us that we have to pay carbon taxes and, you know, we pay the carbon taxes or whatever. um, And it never gets actually um, invested into the infrastructure that would actually help stave off a lot of the damage. Yes, the climate will change, but it's up to us um, as we learn to live with COVID. We got to learn to live with climate change. And one of the things you do is say, okay, we need a bigger dike, build the bigger dike. And that way you don't get the destruction and the devastation that, you know, and I'll go back to the BC example that we saw there. So there, there's a real disconnect. We're told to take action. We're told to do these things. We do and make the investments, but we never actually get the follow-up when it comes to the government policy. That's right. That's because uh, the government is really focused, as I said, not on, on the current day risks that they tell you about or they, they're talking about, but on future, on the future scenarios that their models tell them is the optimal way of, of doing things for the world. And so all the money that comes in from the carbon tax, it, yeah, it, doesn't, it does not go back into actually fixing infrastructure or toward uh, um, changing insurance regimes so that people make better decisions or any of those pragmatic things, work, fixing the electrical grid so that it's responsive in case of uh, climate variations, fixing water systems so they're responsive, fixing sewer systems so that they can respond to higher and level storm flows. Um, it never goes to that pragmatic uh, clear the snow, out of get the snow off the streets by making sure we actually have enough plows <laughs> And salt. Mm-hmm. It always goes to what's going to change things in the year 2070, uh, which is convenient because, of course, everybody alive now is in charge will not be in, <laughs> will not be working then, so they can't be held accountable when nothing actually comes good comes of their all their spending. Right. Albeit, I think we'll all be long, all long be gone. But I mean, the bottom line is the computer forecasting modeling that is used uh, predicts kind of constantly worst case scenarios, even if that's not true. Um, you know, the bottom line is 
10 years, 10 years, 10 years, you would think, and I'm surprised we haven't yet seen it, Ken, a pushback like, what's going on here? You said 20 years ago or 30 years ago that this would happen. It never did because they come up with different language. It was global warming and now it's just climate change. I mean, you can easily kind of buy yourself time if you just change the the wording on it and kind of take people in a different direction. But at some point, um, it would be nice to, to actually have some solid data here. Absolutely. They change the terms and they also change the, the framework. So, as I said in the, the report, sometimes it's 10 years until we actually have climate disaster. And sometimes it's 10 years until we reach a tipping point at which climate disaster will become irreversible. And they use these all of these kind of, of, of constructions interchangeably so that people don't really under, they, they don't understand the nuance of it. And they just think disaster is imminent if we don't make change now. Um, and I thought people have pointed it out over the years. The problem is, As with other things we've seen recently, um, people who are dubious of government um, proclamations tend to be attacked as uh, skeptics and deniers and um, outliers and things like that uh, and and, uh, dismissed and sent off into the to the the boonies um, career wise. So but I think hopefully uh, things are turning around and people are seeing better uh, the the danger of letting models drive our policies. Uh, as opposed to letting data and uh, and empirical measurement and science drive our policies. Well, the old saying goes, never let the facts get in the way of a good story. And that seems to be the way we're uh, designing these policies when it comes to the issue. Kenneth, interesting report. Very much appreciate your time on it. My pleasure. Thanks. That is uh, Ken Green, who's the author of this report. Is climate catastrophe really 10 years away? And look, if it is, let's just get some accuracy. But it's about time that those taking the money for it and who fill up our airways kind of 24-7 with this just start getting actual data that is accurate. Otherwise, people will stop caring. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us Monday through Friday starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on Point, and this is Global News Radio.